Well, good morning. Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Jude. In first service, uh, without even really realizing I said it, I told everybody to open up to the book of Luke, and then I just casually went on like that was what we were doing. <laughs> um, We're starting Luke in a couple of weeks. We've got two more weeks in the book of Jude. And as you kind of get yourself settled, uh, I want to pray. And then I kind of want to set up what it is that we're going to be seeing this morning in Jude and and sort of how we're going to work our way through that. So let's pray, and then we'll take a look. God, thanks for this morning. Lord, thank you that when we sing that song, Open Up the Heavens, we want to see you. we're, we're actually singing a prayer that has been answered, that when we show up as a church or when we are going about our daily lives, Lord, we don't have to uh, hope and wish like for the miraculous in order to see you, God. You sent your son and we see you in the person of Jesus. You gave us your word and we see you in the words of scripture. You've brought us together as a church and we're able to see Jesus when we look into the eyes of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my prayer this morning, God, is that we would see you, but that we wouldn't miss it looking for something miraculous when you've actually given us the ability to see you in things that are more, let's call them mundane. God, would we see you in your word this morning? God, would you open our hearts, enlighten our minds, God. Give us ears that hear and eyes that see as we look at the truth of your word that we would see you. God, would we see you when we look to the cross collectively as a congregation here? God, would we see you in the person of Jesus that we worship and we magnify and that we lift up this morning? God, would we see you as we interact with one another and look into each other's faces and into each other's eyes? Would we see the love and the grace and the compassion and the mercy of Christ in that? God, we want to see you this morning. And I pray that you would give us hearts and eyes that do exactly that. Lord, would we make much of the gospel together this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like we've done the last three weeks, we're going to read the entire book of Jude, uh, start to finish, 25 verses. But before we do that, I just kind of want to lay out what it is that we're going to see. We're going to work with verses 12 down to 21 this morning. And this morning and next Sunday are actually going to overlap a little bit. There's a reason for that. We'll get to it later. But next week, we'll work with 17 down to the end of the book in verse 25. What we're going to see this morning are two comparison contrasts. One between uh, like the condemned, what Jude says in verse 4, are these people who were designated for judgment long ago, and then a comparison to the Christ and the reality of Jesus. And then we'll see a comparison again of those who deny Jesus. That was verse 4. They deny Jesus Christ, our only master and, and Lord. And the dearly loved, which is who Jude actually like directly addresses in verses 17 and 20. So that's where we're headed. I want to set up that contrast a little bit, though, by telling you a quick story. I grew up on Pop-Tarts. You can... Don't think less of my parents. 
I was strong-willed, and that's what I wanted to eat for breakfast. And so I actually grew up on brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts, which are the only Pop-Tarts. Anything else is heretical. Brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts that come out of the blue Pop-Tart box. I can remember distinctly the first time I had something that someone called a Pop-Tart, but it was anything but a Pop-Tart. I was over at my best friend's house. I had spent the night there. We woke up. Uh, we had slept like on this, you know, big kind of L-shaped couch down in his basement. And his mom said from upstairs, hey, do you guys want breakfast? And, you know, bleary and whatever. I, uh, yes. And Ryan, my best friend, said, hey, we have Pop-Tarts. I said, are they brown sugar cinnamon? He said, yes, they are. And Ryan said, we'll, we'll both take Pop-Tarts. Moments later. Two plates arrive down in the basement. Ryan gets his, takes a big bite. I'm staring at mine, and I said, what is this? And he said, it's a brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tart. I said, this is not a brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tart. If you'd have handed me the package, I could have told you that what was sitting in front of me was a brown sugar cinnamon Toastum. You could have blindfolded me and just handed me like the actual, you know, aluminum foil kind of thing that both Pop-Tarts and Toastums come inside. And holding that package, I could have told you, you're not about to make me a Pop-Tart. You could have kept me blindfolded, not given me the aluminum foil thing. You could have just handed me the actual cooked thing. And in my hand, I could have told you, this is not a Pop-Tart. This is a Toastum. You could have fed it to me on a fork. And when it touched my mouth in a very revelation kind of way, I would have spit it out. Yes. That's how dedicated I was to brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts when I was young. And I, with 100% certainty, if you know what you're looking for, you can spot a fake very, very easily. It's not hard. They taste different. They feel different. They look different. They smell different. Toastums are fake. They're imposters. <laughs> Pop-tarts are delicious. Here's what's happening in Jude. Jude wants his readers to understand that there's something fake among them. And if you know what to look for, it sounds different, it looks different, lives different, the taste, the aroma of these people is different, and they need to be contended against. Let's read the entirety of the book of Jude. This is the word of the Lord through Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, <clears throat> although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was uh, disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand, and what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's heir for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts, as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds. Trees in late autumn, fruitless and twice dead, uprooted. They are, the, they are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was prophesied about these that Enoch, or it was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones, the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way concerning all the harsh and ungodly things that sinners have said against them. Sorry, I missed, a, I missed a whole line there. To execute judgment on and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against them. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on the fire. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. And God's people said, amen. Let me show you where we're gonna land here. Two comparisons, the condemned in the Christ and then the deniers and the dearly loved. The main idea this morning, and really one big main idea from Jude, is that what we do comes out of who we are. What we do comes out of who we are. First, let me draw this comparison between the condemned and the Christ. We're going to look here at verses 12 through 13. Evidently, these imposters who, as verse four said, had like slipped in or snuck into the church by stealth, they're not only present within the church, but they've become leaders, teachers, shepherds is what we're going to see. The repeated question here that I want you to kind of ask yourself as we work through this comparison is, which kind of person would you rather follow? Because Jude's point is that there are these imposters, there are toastums in the congregation, and they are to be neither followed nor listened to. And at the same time, there is Christ. And he is to be both humbly submitted to and praised and exalted. So here is the way we get the condemned described. They are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat eat with you without reverence. They're dangerous reefs. That phrase, dangerous reefs at your love feasts, we read it and and we immediately say, say what? (laughs) What's happening here? 
It's a nautical image, right? These dangerous reefs that would be kind of lurking in the water. And as your ship sails over the top of it, snags on the reef, cuts a hole in your boat, and now you're sinking. They're dangerous reefs. These imposters have slipped in by stealth and they will wreck your church and your life as an individual. They'll cause you to sink and you don't even know that they're there. And then there's the tag at your love feast. I'll just be real quick here. Jot down if you want to and you want to go look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul describes in that chapter what it is that communion or the Lord's Supper looked like in the early church. We think of communion or we think of the Lord's Supper as one part of a church service where we stop and we take a wafer or a cracker or some bread and we take some juice or some wine. And in our gathering together, we do that as one part of our service. The Lord's Supper or communion in the early church was the culmination of an actual meal. You sat down together, you ate a whole meal together as a church family, and then you took the Lord's Supper as like kind of the peak of that gathering together. What Jude is saying is that present there are people who are fake. And they will wreck your ship if you listen to them and allow yourself to follow them. On the other side, what do we have in Christ? We have what the New Testament presents to us as more akin to a lighthouse, that Jesus exposes dangers, brings you safely, not just into harbor, but ultimately to shore with him. You're kept by him, safe. Follow the one that you want, Jude says. You can have this dangerous reef that's ultimately going to wreck you, Or you could have Jesus who will bring you into safe harbor. The next image is that of selfish shepherds. They are shepherds who look only after themselves. The image comes right out of Ezekiel chapter 34. Rather than kind of offer my own explanation, I'm just going to read you what it is that Ezekiel says. The word of the Lord came to me. That's Ezekiel, the prophet. Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend to the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you've ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord, because my flock, lacking a shepherd, has become prey and food for every wild animal, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, and because the shepherds feed themselves rather than my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says, look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them, prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For this is what the word of the Lord says, see, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture. And their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. They will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord. 
Jude says, you can have shepherds who feed only themselves or you can have the good shepherd who in Jesus Christ came to seek his flock, tends them, feeds them, cares for them. Which would you rather have? Selfish shepherd who feeds only themselves or the good shepherd who not only feeds the flock but lays down his life for it? Shepherds who look only after themselves or the good shepherd who not only searches for the flock but would leave the flock to search for one sheep that's gone astray? The next image is waterless clouds carried along by the winds. The image is that of clouds that give the appearance of offering water to dry or parched land, but ultimately they offer nothing. Looks like they'll assuage thirst, but instead they leave the land not just thirsty, but disillusioned. What do we have in Jesus? John 4 tells us that we have living water in Christ. You could go to those clouds or you could go to some other well, but ultimately what you'll end up with is disappointment. But Jesus, on the other hand, he is living water who will fully satisfy. You can have one or the other, Jude says. The next image is trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. They have no fruit now, these imposters that have slipped in by stealth. They didn't have fruit before either. They're dead trees, twice dead, actually, which is the reality of anyone apart from Christ. Dead physically, dead spiritually. Or you can have Jesus, who John 15 is the true vine, who gives life to all who are connected to him and gives fruit to all who are connected to him. Verse 13, they're wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds. This image comes right out of Isaiah 57, verse 20. The wicked are like storm-tossed seas, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. The image is of these wild waves, but the actual thrust is that what's foaming up from those waves, which is shameful deeds. Judas made it clear throughout the whole letter that you can spot these imposters, you can spot the toastums by the way that they live. You can see it in who they are and what they do. Evil bubbles up under the wild waves of their own lives. But what does Hebrews tell us about Jesus? That we who have fled to Christ in order to find grace and mercy there, we have refuge in him, an anchor for our souls. No wild waves, no swirling foam. Instead, as we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, It's not a constant stream of mire and muck, but a progressively obedient life. We've got waters made smooth by the firmness of Jesus' presence, lives made increasingly obedient to his word by the stabling and sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit. You can have one or the other, says Jude. You can either contend against the condemned or you can submit yourself to the Christ. The last image is that of wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Rather than you know, being able to navigate in this time by fixed points of light in the sky, stars that you could look at and it allows you to direct where you're supposed to be going. Jude says, these guys are like wandering stars. You can't follow them and actually get any sort of direction. Jesus, by contrast, we're told in John 1, is a light that shines in the darkness and cannot be overcome. And by grace, what he causes his children, his people to be is what we see in Philippians chapter two, blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. So there are your options. 
the condemned, who are to be contended against rather than followed. They're dangerous reefs, selfish shepherds, waterless clouds, dead trees, wild waves, wandering stars, or you can submit yourself to the Christ who provides safe harbor, who is the good shepherd, who's living water, the true vine, an anchor for your soul in the light of life. Which would you rather, which would you rather have? Contend against the one, submit yourself to the other, Jude says. And you can see who these people are by the way that they live. That's because what we do comes out of who we are. Starting in verse 14, Jude's gonna make it very clear as if it hasn't been spelled out clearly enough for us exactly who these individuals are. In verse four, we were told that they were ungodly. They live without reverence for or reference to God. We were told that they turn grace into sensuality. They live with license. They just sin and say, it's fine. Jesus will forgive me. They deny Jesus Christ, rejecting his lordship and his authority. Last week, Joe walked us through verses five through 11, where we saw these past examples that these people are like the Israelites without faith. Again, ungodly, no reverence to or reference to God. They're like angels who revolted against God or rejected his authority. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah who are the epitome of judgment because of their sexual license and sensuality. They're like these present apostates. Apostate is just a fancy church word that means that you've like renounced belief. It's not just that you're ignorant and you don't know, it's that you do know and you've chosen not to believe. That's an apostate. They reject authority. Jude says, they're ungodly. They defile the flesh. Again, grace into license. They slander glorious ones. Most notably, these apostates slander the glorious one, Jesus Christ. And so Jude quotes from a book called First Enoch. Before we look at verse 14, let me just give you a little bit about First Enoch. First Enoch is not something you could flip into your Old Testament and try to find. It was a very popular uh, non biblical source that first century Jewish people would have been very, very familiar with. It fills in essentially the history of what we have as like Genesis 6 in our Bibles right before the flood uh, account. The most popular Christian book outside of the Bible is a book called Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Millions and millions and millions of faithful followers of Jesus have read that book over uh, a long period of time. If I were to offer a quote from Pilgrim's Progress, none of us would think, oh, that's, that's the Bible. Pilgrim's Progress is part of scripture. We would say, that must be a quote that supports biblical truth. When Jude quotes from First Enoch, he's doing the same thing. Here's something that you're all familiar with. You've read it, you understand it. It's not the Bible, but here's a quote out of that that supports and illuminates biblical truth. That's what's happening with First Enoch. Here. He did the same thing with a book called The Assumption of Moses up in verses 5 through 11 that Joe walked through last week. So when Jude does this, he wants his people to understand that here's a truth that illuminates or helps us understand biblical truth. And so it says this It was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on, and now listen for the repetition of words to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. 
What we do comes out of who we are. Who are these people that have slipped in by stealth, Jude says? They are ungodly. That is the primary thing Jude wants his readers to understand. Four times he uses that word. They are ungodly. Their acts are ungodly. The ways they do those acts are ungodly. And then he circles back around a fourth time to say they are ungodly. And he laces the word all through it. All will be judged. That's universal. Then he's going to become specific. These particular ungodly people will all be judged for all their ungodly acts and all of their ungodly speech. The key, what we've been pointing out all the way since back in verse 4, is that the way that these people live gives evidence to the falseness of what they believe about God and about Jesus. Their actions make it obvious that they are ungodly. And the result is judgment. The Lord is coming with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. That has run throughout this letter. In verse four, Jude said that these people were designated for destruction. He made reference uh, to judgment in verses five, six, seven, and 10. And then he circles back around to it in verse 15. That idea of judgment is often difficult for us in like modern times, that there would be people that God would uh, save and there would be people that God would judge. That's hard for us to grapple with. I'm just gonna read a quote to you from uh, an author, speaker. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry. She says this, imagine if we lived in a world where all sins against God and people, such as lying, stealing, adultery, murder, racism, sexual immorality, and abuse, just to name a few, are never dealt with. Imagine if we had a justice system that never executed judgment, where those who have murdered are not indicted, where those who have stolen millions were not caught and kept from doing the same again, where those who have abused the vulnerable, oppressed the poor, and failed to care for the marginalized were never confronted with their wrongdoing. At a fundamental level, we'd conclude that a justice system like that was unjust. And if unjust, then not good. This might describe aspects of the world in which we live, but it does not and will never describe God. God's holy justice means he must judge all wrongdoing, no matter how big or how small. Jude says he's coming to execute judgment and that judgment will convict the ungodly. The point is this, that the deniers here are associated with the ungodly and their judgment is certain. But there's a flip side to that. This is our second comparison contrast. There are the deniers, but there are also the dearly loved. Look at verse 17, but you, dear friends. Look at verse 20, but you, dear friends. The flip side of this is that the dearly loved are associated with the Savior and their salvation is certain. God is going to execute judgment on all. But if you've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, when you stand before the Lord and he execute judgment, executes judgment, it will fall on Jesus. It has fallen on Jesus. It won't fall on you. You stand there before the Lord and you've not received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, his holy righteous judgment will fall on you for all of eternity. The ungodly, 
Jude's painted a picture of who they are, starting in verse 4 all the way down through verse 16. Now he's going to kind of turn the corner. In order to understand the book of Jude, you've got to work with it as more of a whole. When we read something from the Apostle Paul, we can read pretty linear. Like he makes his points point one, point two, and point two builds on point one. Then he makes point three, and point three builds on points one and two. And it's pretty straight line. Jude is more like the wad of Christmas lights you're about to get out here in a couple weeks that, you know, 10 months ago you put away and you wrapped them perfectly and you thought, this is the year I get these out in late November and all I do is unspool it and it's wonderful. And then you go and you grab it and it's like a rat's nest. That is a little bit more like Jude. It's all wrapped in on top of itself. And in order to understand it, you've got to kind of pull on the right parts in order to get that to lay itself out. But when you do, it's beautiful. I want to pull two of those kinds of strings this morning and see if we can't get this to straighten itself out. The first one is about who Jude is addressing. Jude, an apostle of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God, kept for Jesus Christ. Then you get down to the bottom. But you, dear friends, but you, dear friends. The address here is to God's people. The drumbeat in the middle of the book of Jude is these people, these people, these people, these people. Then you get to verse 17. But you, and you get to verse 20. But you, and the rhythm changes. Jude's now addressing his readers directly. He's speaking right to them. And that phrase, I don't know how yours translates, uh, you know, the start of 17 and the start of 20. The CSB says, dear friends. Yours might say, dearly loved. Yours might say, beloved. The word in Greek is agapetos. It's the noun form of the word agape, which is the word for God's perfect, holy love. Dear friends is agapetos. Those that God has set his perfect love upon. Let me give you two biblical examples of that word that I think brings some clarity to this in Jude. When the Old Testament was initially translated from Hebrew to Greek, it was done so in a book called the Septuagint. It's the first translation of that that would have gotten all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament into one language, Greek. In Genesis 21, Isaac is born. He's born to Abraham. He's, the, he's a miracle, the fulfillment of a promise. And then in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him. And this is the way the Septuagint renders it. Your only son, Isaac, the one whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering. Your only son, Isaac, your agapetos, your dearly loved son, your beloved Son, what happens? Abraham, in a great act of faith, takes Isaac to the place that God has commanded. And then in the face of Isaac's suffering and death, God provides a sacrifice, fulfills his promise to Abraham, fulfills his promise to all of Abraham's offspring, ultimately fulfills his promise to us in the preservation of the line of the Messiah. Second example comes out of the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain. And while he's there, he's transfigured into an image of his glory. 
His face, is, we're told, is shining like the sun. His clothes are like a bright white light. And in that moment, God's voice bursts forth from a cloud and says, this is my agapetos, son, beloved, my dearly loved son. Both Isaac and Jesus. Isaac, the lowercase s, son of promise. And Jesus, the capital S, son of promise. Face suffering and death. And both are saved by the power of God. Isaac, by the providing of a sacrifice. Jesus, by the resurrection from the dead. They are the agapetos. Now Jude says to his readers, but you, beloved, who have been saved from the suffering and the death and the sinful nature of this world, thanks to the sacrifice of the Son, you are something different. You're not the ungodly. You're the beloved, the dearly loved. That's who Jude's readers are. They are something different fundamentally. They're not these people, these people, these people, these people. They are the dearly loved people of God. And because they are something different, they are to do something different. But you, dear friends, and here's the first thing that they should do. Remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. They shouldn't be either surprised or swayed by these imposters. Don't be enticed by a toastum. It's gross. You don't want that. Don't be swayed by it. A Pop-Tart is always better. I told you this would happen. And now what we do comes out of who we are. And we are the dearly loved, called, loved, kept. Verse one, the dearly loved people of God. Verse 17 and 20, rescued by God is an unmerited act of his grace. And because of that, just look at verses 16 and 19. We're the opposite of these people. These people are discontented grumblers. We're people of gratitude. These people live according to their own desires. We're people of obedience, not of indulgence. These people are arrogant. Arrogant words. We're people of humility. These people flatter others for their own advantage. We're people of honesty and integrity. Jump down to verse 19. These people create divisions. We're people of unity. These people are worldly. We're people of godliness, people of the word, not of the world, people of obedience, not of rebellion. We're not people of the flesh. We, we are people of the spirit. Those are who we are because we are the dearly loved, the beloved of God. It's a special grace and affection that God has lavished upon us thanks to the work of his son that makes us who we are. You should be able to spot a pretender because they're ungodly. And because they're ungodly, you can see it in the things that they do. Let me pull the last string here. Jude wants his readers to be clear about who they are and who needs to be contended against. The ungodly, evidenced by the fact, are evidenced by how they live, displays who they are. The dearly loved, on the other hand, are who they are, thanks to what God has done for them. And that determines how they live. There's a pair of words used twice in this letter, once right next to each other and once split beginning and end. That pair of words is keep and kept. If 
you've got Jude open in front of you, look at verse six. The angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Kept and kept. They didn't keep their right relationship with God. Instead, they rose up in rebellion against him. He's now kept them in eternal chains. They didn't keep right relationship. He's kept them for judgment. The other pair of those words is bracketed in the book. Verse one. The called, loved, kept people of God. You get down to the very bottom here, verses 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. The angels are kept in darkness because they didn't keep. We keep ourselves because we're kept. The order is flipped. You are kept, called, loved, You were kept the moment you were called. You were kept the moment you were loved. Now keep yourselves. And the only reason you can keep yourself is because you're already kept. The answer for how it is that we contend for the faith, back up there in verse three, is first and foremost to keep ourselves in the love of God. The ungodly are kept in judgment because they did not keep proper relationship to God. The contrast to that is that the dearly loved keep themselves in right relationship because they are kept by the grace of God. The order of that is so important. When you look at verses 20 and 21, it's a string of commas. It's a long sentence with a bunch of phrases. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That is the command. Keep yourselves in the love of God. The other stuff around verses 20 and 21 are participles. They depend on the command. You do these things as a means by which you keep yourself. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Wait for the mercy of our Lord. We'll talk about those participles next week. Here's where I want to end. What we do comes out of who we are. We are the kept people of God. And so what we do is keep ourselves in the love of God. What's it look like to not keep yourself in the love of God? Well, jump back up to the way Jude described it all the way back up in verse six. It would be to not respect God's authority. How do we contend for the faith? We keep ourselves in the love of God. Jude's issue though is that those people, the ungodly, are present in the church. That's the whole point here. They're they're at your love feast. They're dangerous reefs. They're shepherds in your own congregation leading people astray. You've got to contend against them. And the way you do that is to keep yourself in the love of God. I've kind of taught my way through the passage. I'm gonna preach for like five minutes here at the end if you'll let me. Last week, and over the course of the last two or three weeks, actually, we've wanted to be very clear about what are the things that we are to be contending against in our own world and in our own culture and in our own churches today. And so we've named some of those things. Last week, Joe talked about the sexual revolution and its influence in our world. We've talked about whether it be the prosperity gospel or other ways of falsely thinking about Jesus, like moral therapeutic deism or positioning Jesus as like the champion of Americanism or nationalism or whatever the case might be. We've wanted to be clear about that. I wanna drive home the main point here though. 
if we're to contend, first and foremost, we keep ourselves in the love of God. Which means this. Unfortunately, what can often happen in the church is that we lapse into thinking that what we primarily need to do is like circle the wagons as the body of Christ and then just yell about what's happening outside there. Something like the sexual revolution that Joe talked about last week. And like what we're supposed to do as a church is just draw ourselves in real close together and look out at the world and act surprised by the fact that broken people would do broken stuff in a broken world. But Jude says that stuff's present in your church. You've got issues with the sexual revolution that exists out there. Well, understand that every study that you look at would say that the use of pornography in our society is the exact same outside the church as it is inside the church. That addiction to pornography outside the church is the exact same as it is inside the church. That instances of adultery are the exact same outside as they are inside. You want to contend well for the faith in the face of the sexual revolution? Then turn off your computer. Keep yourself in the love of God. If you're addicted to pornography, get help. Allow the transforming power of God's grace in your life to free you from that sin. You want to contend well? You don't just need a preacher to get up and rail against what's happening in the society. You need the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside, that you might keep yourself in the love of God. You want your pastor to get up and shout down the prosperity gospel? That's fantastic, but understand that you better start letting go of acting like your 401k or your savings account is what is of primary importance. That when you die, they're gonna cash it and stuff all the dollar bills in your coffin and you're gonna take that with you into eternity. That is not true. You wanna contend well against false gospels? Don't live as though those false gospels are what define you. Let go of the money. Steward it well. Give it for the things that are important to the heart of God. You want to contend well for the gospel in the face of a rising generation who think that God is like just some distant, far off, deist sort of image of God who's there like a vending machine to help them in times of trouble? then contend well by clinging to the gospel yourself. Treasure Jesus as if he is the most important thing, whether your life is going really well or whether it feels like it's sliding away down the toilet. You grab hold of that gospel and you hold on to it because it is the most precious thing. And the millennials and the Generation Z individuals that are sitting in your pews need to see what it looks like for someone to love the gospel and to love Jesus above anything and everything else. You want to contend well for the gospel? Keep yourself in the love of God. That is the message of Jude. The point is not to argue well. It is to keep yourself in the love of God, first and foremost. You can spot an imposter by the way that they live and they've snuck in by stealth, Jude says. But that must mean the opposite is true. You can spot a person who cherishes Jesus by the way that they live. And if you want to contend well, then be who you are, the dearly loved people of God.
be that, Jude says. Why would we do any of those things? Because we know who we are. We know that right now, before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. We know that right now, my name, our names are graven on his hands, written on his heart. And we know that so long as he stands in that place at the right hand of God, nothing could bear cause me to depart from him. That's who we are. If we're gonna contend well, we're to live accordingly. Empowered by the grace of God. Transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And thus contending against everything that is false. What we do comes out of who we are. And you can spot an imposter if you know what to look for. But the good news is that means you can spot the real thing if you know what to look for. And you can be the real thing because that's what God has made you. Old is gone, new has come. We were dead, now we're alive. We're gonna end our time together here, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, just singing the truth of the gospel. Over one another, to our own hearts. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That's who you are. Amen? Let's sing.